Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Alex Wang, founder and CEO of Scale, Casa Yunus, founder and CEO of Applied Intuition. Guys, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having us, Eric. Yeah, thank you for having us. Casper, Alex, why don't you both briefly introduce Scale and Applied Intuition, and maybe you can talk a little bit about how you guys navigated the idea maze of autonomy and how you chose those two perspective paths. Alex, let's start with you. Cool. So Scale is an API for getting training data and validation data for machine learning purposes. So we partner with a number of companies in the self-driving space from Toyota to Cruise to Zooks to Lyft to provide them with accurate data in the form of annotated imagery or LiDAR data that they can use to build their perception and mapping algorithms. In terms of how we arrived at the idea, we actually came at this idea more from a deep learning and AI mindset than from an autonomy mindset. So one of the biggest barriers and bottlenecks in building AI and machine learning is getting enough data so that you can power your very data-hungry algorithms. So we set out to sort of solve that problem before we knew that this would be heavily applied to the autonomy space. So we built this solution that helped uh, machine learning engineers get more data to build their algorithms. And then one of the most natural use cases that came up was for the autonomous sector because they are heavily reliant on deep learning, heavily reliant on AI, and they're also very safety and uh, quality sensitive, meaning it's a, it's a perfect use case for our product. So this is Kasser. Uh, the, uh, our company is Applied Intuition. Applied provides uh, simulation tools for uh, specifically for autonomous vehicle development and kind of more broadly the tools around accelerating AV development. So in many ways our customers really look at us as kind of an IDE for AV development. In terms of uh, how did we kind of come up uh, with the company and come to the idea, it is tied to mine and Peter, my co-founder's backgrounds. Uh, both of us are uh, automotive uh, natives, Michigan natives uh, specifically. Uh, I, I worked at General Motors and Bosch for a bunch of years. I went to GMI actually undergrad. And uh, we saw, when we saw autonomy kind of, we were both at Google and we saw autonomy and we saw chauffeur specifically, which ultimately became Waymo. And we, we felt, okay, this is going to, this is going to be huge. And this is before all the companies we kind of know uh, are in the ecosystem. This is before Cruise and before Argo and Aurora, et cetera, the companies that are now in, in the autonomy ecosystem. And we, so we started thinking about what are interesting things. This is like 2013 that could be built. So we looked at vertical and horizontal companies. And ultimately, when we looked at horizontal companies, we concluded that there was this, this missing, really, real, really missing puzzle piece in autonomy development. I think whereas Alex came at it from the AI ML view, we came at it for from specifically the autonomy viewpoint. And uh, that's how we land on simulations. You know, if you're an automotive engineer, you, you use simulators. It's, it's not a, it's, it's a part of development. One of the probably underreported stories of how very technical products get developed. If you're developing a, you know, uh, an engine today or an air turbine or, or a wind turbine, I should say, uh, you're not doing it, you know, with paper and pencil. And even CAD, just traditional CAD has its limitation. Simulation plays a really important role. So we saw the opportunity, the way that we actually investigated, and I think that's, for you know, future founders who are probably listening, trying to glean lessons from us, the way that they, the way we really kind of you know fell on on the on this business is we wanted to really ensure that this problem was a real problem, that it could be done as a standalone company, that customers would pay money for this, and there's a lot of customers, and and ultimately does it fit into a larger thesis? Our larger thesis at Applied is there are going to be tier one software suppliers that are in the automotive business. And so autonomy is just the beginning of kind of that, that, that trans, transformation of the automotive business from a hardware business to a, ultimately a software business. We, we, you know, we, we drumbeat the, the idea of the software car and us being really integral to the software car. So simulation also, sometimes people mistakenly think of it as you do it once and you're done. And, and it's not like that. You're doing algorithm development you know, uh, in an on an ongoing basis, even when you have vehicles in the road who are successfully navigating vast majority of the uh, operational design domain that you have, you know, the, the limited one that you've maybe set up. And as you expand that ODD, 
you're, you're, you're going to continue to use simulation as you change vehicle models. You're going to continue to use simulation. And so there's a really nice tie-in from the, the AV engineer's desk and using this, the simulator and IDE and all the way into vehicles. Uh, that, that's roughly kind of the arc of, of, of what we saw and, and how we got here. Yeah. And, and I actually see a lot of parallels that you're saying between similarly, like labeling is an ongoing problem. People think it's one and done. I think that's a, that's a general mistake that actually people have about thinking uh, about very hard technical problems. They think that like all of the components of the problem you can sort of solve once and then you move on. But I think one of the themes I'm sure we'll get to this is that autonomy is just a very hard problem, a lot of service area, and all these problems are really evergreen, really ongoing over time. Yeah, I mean, one of the simple analogies is like, is Google Maps done? You know, I worked on Google Maps for a bunch of years. Like, no, the Google Maps, is there, there's like releases of Google Maps all the time. It is like, generally it's done in the sense of there is a product available which you can download and navigate through, you know, Sunnyvale, San Francisco, wherever. But in terms of, that product is constantly evolving. And, and that's one of the powerful you know, things about software is you, when you ship it, you can still actually make changes to it, unlike, you know, let's say, a hardware product or, or a wearable where once it's out in the market, it's, it's very hard because you're constrained by that hardware. Yeah, while we unpack a little bit further, Castro, why, why, didn't, why not pursue uh, the Zooks approach or the Aurora approach or the Cruise approach? Or, or what do you know, people, the founders who've built those companies believe that's different about the market or about the opportunity than, than perhaps you did? Yeah, so each of those companies have a very different approach. Uh, superficially, Zooks, Aurora, and Cruise look similar. Uh, they actually have very, very different approaches, and the founders have very different experiences and approach the problem in very different ways. So it's, it's very hard to generalize. But my, my guess is what you're saying is why not a vertical company versus a horizontal company? Kind of, we're, we're both horizontal companies. There are some structural advantages to building horizontal companies. So number one, there are huge advantages to building vertical companies. So I, I, I don't mean to, 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 that it's not a good business. They are good businesses, but there are some structural advantages for horizontal companies. Probably the main one is we're not betting on any individual player to win or lose. We could have our customers, some of our customers not be successful or some of our customers even die. And we would kind of, we're durable enough because we're supplying a lot of the, a lot of the ecosystem. And I think it applies to both, both of the companies here today. That's very powerful, right? Because the big risk right now in autonomy is when will it happen? And so whether it happens soon or, or far away, we're somewhat isolated from that, uh, from that risk. I think there are also other um, structural advantages. I mean, horizontal companies or infrastructure companies are not new. I mean, they, they, every, every kind of wave of, of a technical development within the Valley uh, has had huge, massive horizontal companies. And they probably the main reason is when you have a group of people, a, a small group of people that are focused on a specific problem, they, will, they can share that R&D cost across a bunch of customers they can share learnings of what they're learning kind of just broadly from, from the industry and all of their customers benefit from those learnings. Whereas when you're building something just in-house, you tend to overfit. And of course, when you're a vertical company, there's just so many things they're trying to accomplish. You basically, you know, sometimes people say, well, well, isn't Tesla an example of a company that's building everything in-house? And that's, that's actually, you know, just fundamentally, it's not true. But probably the SpaceX example is better. SpaceX is successful because... You know, Elon Musk and the senior leadership there said, we're going to buy everything we can off, off the shelf. And that's just not the way that traditionally NASA has operated in some large, l- large technical projects within the government have operated in space. And so I think we similarly, at least certainly at Apply, similarly believe that that's going to happen in the autonomy market where you have super complicated systems. The more you can modularize and isolate individual modules and say, hey, you know what, this is actually not going to make a fundamental difference if we do this in-house or if we outsource this, I think the faster those companies will move because then their problem area becomes much more constrained and smaller. So I think that's probably, it's not, it's not a direct answer of why I think vertical companies are not good. It's just, I think there's some really clear structural advantages of horizontal companies. Yeah, I, I think there's, there's definitely pros and cons to both. But like Kazar was saying, one of the big things is, first, we're very much bought in on autonomy as a space, but we're less, a bit less bought in on which particular companies, which particular brands succeed. That's a huge advantage for a company in this area. And I think the other big one is we fundamentally believe, and I'm sure Kazar does too, it's, we believe this at scale, that we can fundamentally push the whole industry forward a lot more by bringing sort of a very scalable, innovative product across the whole ecosystem than by trying to sort of attack the problem again on our own. Like I think systematically, if you look at sort of the space right now, there's a lot of individual players all trying to build autonomy or build build something close to full stack autonomy on their own. And 
the sort of like neglected problem or the arbitrage opportunity is who's who's there actually providing the infrastructure and providing the cross-industry innovation in this field. Because you know it's going to happen. And like 10 years from now, 20 years from now, the autonomy space is probably going to look a lot like the automotive space today in which there's a large number of tier one suppliers that the OEMs heavily rely on. And if you look right now in terms of where entrepreneurs can spend their effort, building these AV stack companies is actually, I think, a very good opportunity. Yeah, I, th- I think the, uh, to, to underline something there, which is, if you look at automotive history, automotive companies tried to do everything vertically as well when they started. So as you start scaling, no pun intended, there is some natural things where you say, hey, we're, we're going to now just outsource this. And, and uh, one of the, I think, you know, clear examples is as, as Tesla grows and grows and it has more vehicles and ultimately has more manufacturing facilities, and you'll see more and more suppliers come in. As you increase technical complexity, it's better to modularize so you can isolate individual parts of the, you know, whatever the stack or whatever, whatever term you want to use, individual part of the AV system. So I think, I think that's where the, there's, there's some real power in horizontal companies. Also, there's, uh, there's this concept of when companies have to do the same thing again and again, it's almost better for somebody to independently do it. And so one extreme example, this is like, why don't companies build their own buildings? Or why don't they build their own laptops? Or why don't they build their own chairs? Because it's not... That's not going to make them a better company, and there's actually other people who are much better at it. So you really have to identify where's the build byline in whatever industry you're working in, and how close can you almost like fence in the problem, uh, especially in super technical products, because then that allows you to get to market faster, right? You, you, you almost isolate yourself from these other risks of like, imagine if you're trying to do simulation or, or labeling in-house, that's just another risk. Yep. Like that, that, that's just another risk that uh, that could fall apart as you're going to market. And it's actually better to have a company which has a bunch of customers and has the weight of the industry on it because that company is not going away and they're learning and that's all they do. So there, 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 there's advantages. I think, I think one thing about uh, vertical companies as well as you're seeing o- over the years that are, that are changing and, and I think you'll continue to see this is there's economic pressure that's coming in. You, you've had articles recently about, you know, such AV program is spending hundreds of millions a, month, uh, a quarter. Other ones are spending billions a year. That's just market inefficiency. And so what horizontal companies do, and, and this is like the, the real gears of capitalism, it drives efficiency by you know, sharing those costs across lots of companies and, and being focused on, on just one thing. So I think there's just, there, there's just some really interesting things, uh, again, as a, as a horizontal company. If you're a future founder or if you're, if, you're, or if you're somebody at one of these AV programs trying to figure out okay, what do I keep in house, what, what, what could be built externally, I think there has to be this mix of it should both be big enough where it can be a company so you can get momentum, but it, should be, it, it, shouldn't, it shouldn't be so vast that it, it itself you, you become almost like a horizontal player. Like if we say, hey, we're going to build perception algorithms and we're going to do labeling and we're going to do simulation, you're, you're almost a lot of long way there in terms of actually being an autonomy company. You, you actually look more like a vertical company. Almost by definition, the horizontal companies work on a specific problem and do it really well for the whole industry. Yep. Zooming, uh, so before we're getting deeper into autonomy, I want to zoom out and expand that question perhaps to other, to other sectors and markets. What characteristics, if you, if you think are generalizable, sort of determine whether it's best to pursue a vertical or horizontal approach when evaluating other markets? I mean, I, I think if you look at actually the history of software, it's, it's really interesting. So I think in general, there always will be horizontal companies in basically any sector or any vertical. There will always be large horizontal software companies that get built. Like, for example, uh, PlanGrid just got acquired. They're a very horizontal software company that sort of helps every single construction company build things faster. AWS is one of the prototypical examples, a, a vast horizontal business that uh, helps every single web company, now basically almost every single company, and, and really focus in on providing cloud and innovated that sort of whole space. So, so I mean, I think if you if you actually look and you look at any individual vertical, there are tons of horizontal players that are already there. Some of them might be very old school, not very tech enabled. Some of them might be more tech enabled. And those opportunities always exist. When you're deciding if you want to do a more verticalized company or a more horizontal company, I think it really comes down to a couple of things. I think first is like where you think your advantages lie, where you think your particular advantages as an entrepreneur, as a team lie, and then also like what you think the dynamics of the market are, particularly in terms of the volatility of various players within the market and what your chance to, to win it looks like. So I think, for example, in consumer companies, 
if you think you're going to be very good at branding and customer acquisition and marketing, you'll probably want to build something that looks a little more verticalized versus if you think your unique differentiating impact is you can build really great technology that's going to be used by, that can be used by every single player, you might want to build a horizontal solution. I think that we, we sort of talked a bit about this. One of the really interesting things about building a horizontal company in the autonomy market is that it's so clear that it's going to grow a huge amount, yet, and yet at the same time, it's very uncertain who's going to capture that. So I think it, when, whenever you have those kinds of characteristics in a market, it's a very good opportunity to build a horizontal company, just like um, Stripe. If you look at Stripe when they got started in 2009, 2010, it was, it was a very live time for a ton of startups. Like there were all these on-demand companies, all these e-commerce companies. And again, it was pretty unclear who was going to come out on top, but they were able to successfully get an index of all of the companies in those verticals, which, which worked out really well for them. So a bunch of high-level thoughts. I, I think the, the TLDR is probably, if, if you think spaces are going to grow a lot, and then there's a lot of like entropy, a lot of uncertainty in them, I think those are generally very good opportunities for horizontal companies. Also, if you think you're generally better at the technology, and then I would try to build horizontal companies. Companies like Segment have done this really well. That's said perfectly. Yeah. So, Casper, we recently met with Bill Gates, uh, and you mentioned, uh, you being a, you know, a, a student of, of history and of technology, mentioned to, to Bill that you, you believe that applied intuition was in a similar spot to where Microsoft was when, when they started. Unpack that a little bit. Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, uh, talking about vertical and horizontal companies, Microsoft and Intel are, you know, are, are classic horizontal companies, right? They, the vertical companies in that, or in that time frame, this is the 1980s, Microsoft and Apple we're talking about, uh, and Intel, was, you know, the Apple personal computer, the personal computers at IBM, and a bunch of the clone manufacturers, Compaq and Dell and many other created, and Windows and Intel kind of sat across the industry. And it's just like Alex was saying, you don't know where the PC market is going. There's some technical complexity there. Uh, there's volatility there. And, and those companies did particularly well. Uh, and in many ways, ultimately, were the winners of that, 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 that industry. I think that, that's where the analogy, I think, is, is very apt. Now, PC market, autonomy market, two very different markets, and there's a lot of detail. Autonomy market is much more complicated than building a personal computer, maybe even in you know, 1980. Roughly, IBM's strategy at that time was, hey, let's buy basically everything off the shelf. And, and they could, whereas today, I think there's still kind of questions around sensors and some, some questions around compute and, and just cost of the cost of vehicle maintenance and some other things to, to, to make the economics around autonomy so that there, there's actually more question marks in terms of just the product going to market. And of course, it's just, it's not a solved problem. Nobody in 1980, 82, 84 was wondering, is there going to be a PC? I mean, you, you can still have a pretty healthy debate today about what is autonomy, what does autonomy look like, and what's the timelines for autonomy. And anytime you hear opinions, ourselves included, in a, in a new market, people, you know, have a viewpoint and then they're driving hard for that viewpoint. When, when, like one example is when people will drumbeat and say, well, autonomy is 10 years away or five years. It's, I, I really always want to understand what's their role in the business. If you're the industry leader, without saying any names, if you're the industry leader, you almost have an incentive to say it's five or 10 years later because that almost detracts people from entering the space and it detracts investors from putting in the space. Let's say the opposite was true, that autonomy is definitely going to happen and it's definitely going to happen next year. There would be, an, there would be a land grab happening. There, there would be an incredible amount of capital coming in, people coming in. And so you have to really kind of, kind of separate out the, out the motivations. But the point here being autonomy is different than the PC market, but there are some similarities. And I, I, think, I think that the Bill Gates uh, conversation really was just underlining the, some of the points we've talked about earlier of, of, of hey, we all know autonomy is going to happen. And so what's the best way to extract value out of that economic system uh, while isolating risk? And that's really what, you know, that's what business is, right? Risk and reward management. Cool. So why don't you guys unpack a little bit about what is the current state of autonomy? Where are we right now? And how has that perhaps evolved over the last three to five years? Sure. It's a very exciting time for autonomy. That's sort of the headline in that I think, like we were saying, it's very hard to predict what exactly will happen, but it's clear there's a lot of activity and a lot of very, very smart people working on the problem. So in general, I think you, you look, there's definitely a couple front runners on the technology, people who have been able to invest both a lot more resources 
have like much stronger financial backing to invest in the problem. Cruz and Waymo are, are generally the folks that you sort of see as the, the two front runners in the space. Uh, at the same time, you have a large OEM industry, a large auto industry that is, I would say, uh, tentatively looking at the industry and figuring out where they should be placing their bets. So the OEM industry is selectively partnering with some of the autonomy startups. They also have their own programs. So they're, they're definitely playing a mixed strategy. They, they don't want to be, they want to have a very safe strategy such that if and when autonomy ever occurs, that they'll be in a, in a safe spot. Meanwhile, you have all of these autonomy startups who have really incredible teams. Some of them are able to attract large, large amounts of capital and really able to, to work on the problem quite a bit. And so I'll, I'll just say broadly, you sort of have the, it, mostly within Silicon Valley, a large number of, of tech players. And then there's the OEMs who are in the US or in Europe or in some in, some in China who are sort of taking a longer view, I think, on the on the autonomy space and taking a longer view on the technology. The, the last thing that I think is really interesting is that you have many different modalities and many different business opportunities that are becoming clear as a result of the technology of autonomy. So there's trucking, both in the US and in China and in Europe and, and in multiple different geographies. There's delivery in the US, in China, in Europe, et cetera. There's ride sharing, which I think is the one that's attracting the most attention right now, definitely the most capital right now um, in the US, in China, in Europe. And, and the list probably keeps going. There's probably a bunch of others that uh, are, are starting to see attention. There's like the shuttle services that, that some companies are attacking. There's uh, general, more sort of public transportation. So there's a large number of business models. There's a large number of startups attacking this space. And there's a large amount of capital flooding into the industry uh, from both venture capital as well as the OEMs. So from my standpoint, it's sort of, it's a, it's a very exciting soup because I think there's a lot of potential outcomes at this point. I, and I'm really curious to hear actually what, what Kazar sort of thinks. But there's so many potential outcomes. There's a lot of involved parties. And as we've seen with some companies recently, like it's so heavily talent-based like the progress that these that these organizations can make, that it's very possible for a talent to overturn at any one of these autonomy companies and, and for you to see like new players emerge. So we're quite early in, I think, what autonomy will ultimately become. At the same time, I think we're very quickly going to see an early peak at what autonomy looks like in the industry. Of course, Waymo has announced their timelines, Cruise has announced their timelines, and it'll be very exciting to see the technology start hitting the streets at the same time, the rest of the business models and the rest of the investments are, have yet to be made. It's certainly an interesting time, certainly early innings. Uh, Mark Andreessen wrote in this blog post that he, and a blog post actually announcing our, our applied investment, and he said, autonomous vehicles are one of the most underhyped industries in terms of just the potential impact. And I, and I know people who are cynical are like, well, there seems to be a lot of hype around self-driving cars, and, they're, and it's false to actually define autonomy as just robo-taxis. It's kind of like, uh, you know, in the early 2000s, there was a report by a prominent consulting firm which said, you know, the peak use of cell phones will be 100,000 cell phone, uh, uh, you know, users in the U.S. Well, if you're talking about like satellite phones, right, there are probably still only 100,000 satellite phone users probably in the U.S., but the, the use case actually changes as the mobile industry grows. And he's just kind of diving even more into the mobile industry analogy. If we're sitting in 2005 and Motorola Razor is kind of having its, its glory moment, we're a couple of years still away from even the kind of, you know, what people would say is a gimmick when, when the iPhone launch, which obviously was not. You, you, you just look at the arc of that industry. You have companies like WhatsApp and Snapchat and Instagram and Uber all basically form out of the mobile. What does Instagram even look like on a desktop? Right? There, there's no concept of Instagram on a desktop or on a laptop. And so you literally need this mobile revolution, which then creates use cases which are never conceived or considered in, just in 2005, which is just a, you know, five years before these companies uh, ultimately entered the scene. And so if you look at today, 2018, going into 2019, 10 years from now, just like in mobile, you know, mobile engineers were highly coveted. Uh, I don't know if you remember, like Objective C was like, you know, was like that was what was going to write your ticket out of, uh, you know, I'm old enough, or write your ticket out of out of out of undergrad or grad school. Today, it's like autonomy, but you know, in in, in 2015, in 2016, suddenly mobile engineers are are commodity. Like it's it's not that big of a deal to be a mobile engineer. Just 
five years on from the peak. So in that mobile cycle, you go from 05 to 15, you go through this entire cycle of skepticism, no phones in cars, they should not be allowed. Whereas in 2015, if you don't have a phone in your car, people are like, whoa, what, what's wrong with you? Like, how are you going to get around? Like, it's like there's almost expectation you have a smartphone in your car because what happens if you break down? Where, and, and so you have this, this entire ecosystem, this entire arc of skepticism, early adoption, mass stream adoption, new use cases, and a mature industry. I think you'll see the same thing in autonomy. And where we are, we're still in the skepticism area. Like every, every time I'm, I lean in into an autonomy statement, I have to like qualify it and say like, well, you know, I'm not crazy if this is based on, you know, based on, based on, on reality. In terms of like the specific timelines of when, when vehicles, well, uh, I've, I've been saying this for, for a while and it's, it's coming to fruition now. I think when the first large scale deployments happen, when any consumer, any investor can fly down to Chandler, Arizona or to uh, Mountain View in Sunnyvale or to San Francisco and get a ride without any, any uh, driver in the safety uh, in, the, in the front seat and, uh, and without NDA and they can take photos, I think that is going to be a real watershed moment for the industry. I think, I think uh, that is going to be maybe the iPhone moment. But, you know, even at the iPhone moment, a lot of people thought, you know, including BlackBerry and a bunch of other folks thought, hey, the iPhone is kind of a gimmick. And you'll still have people say it's a gimmick. More and more of those programs expand and multiple companies start playing in real ways, in large, in large ways. Then you, you're, you're really going to change. I think the tipping point ultimately happens is when you, as an average person, will meet another average person, not in the autonomy business, not in Silicon Valley, and they have taken an autonomous ride. So they, they went to New York and they gotten a taxi or something, or they went to a college campus, or they went to a, the villages in Florida or something, and they, they rode in a car, I think that's when, you'll, that's when brand new use cases will start emerging that, are, that we're, we haven't even, even, even considered yet. Still, still very much in the early innings. I think for investors, I think what is, and, and, and you know, future founders, I think where there's always, what's always tough to figure out when you should build an industry, like right now, let's say you have these new platforms in front of you, voice, cryptocurrencies, autonomy. How do you stack rank which one you should work in? I think, uh, you know, we at least certainly looked at those platforms and we said autonomy is most likely to happen. And that's why we chose it. Also, personal skills from the auto industry, all these other things kind of play into it as well. So it's not only only just the, just the, 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 the sheer arc of the industry. But nobody today debates, will autonomy happen? Now all the debate is when. Uh, three years ago, people were saying, wow, there's no way the car is ever going to drive itself. That's just crazy. And, you know, I, we're past that. And so probably the next cynicism gate we have to get through is like, you know, it's safe is probably the one that's kind of the, the current question. And then cheap will probably be after that. And then like ubiquitous will probably be the yeah. last one. And that's probably the next five to seven years as autonomy really rolls out. Totally. And I, I think you sort of alluded to this, but there are a couple of phases. I think right now we're sort of in autonomy as this technology that is currently being developed and sort of this like technology development phase. And then as soon as it, it starts getting out there, there will be a very nation platform as there's this autonomy as a platform. And, and I think that like it's very hard to predict forward what the overall impact uh, we'll see once it becomes a platform, because there's probably so many ideas that we can't even conceive of now that will actually prove be incredible business, and incredible products that get built on top of autonomy as a platform. So it's it's very exciting. I think it's it's a great time to if you look throughout like the history of startups, like it's, it's great times to invest into platforms and invest into very exciting new ideas at times when people are, are relatively skeptical about them because the time when everybody's bought in on it is it's probably already too late. So yeah, if you're listening to this podcast, it's, it's too late. Just kidding. Uh, <laughs> to what extent do you think that uh, the rise in autonomy will be different if at all from the rise of, of the iPhone or the, or the rise of PC? Like how will those markets be different or, or the rise be different? There's a lot more questions. So, I mean, I think the, the first is like the questions around the technology. I, I think one of the really important ones is that when the iPhone launched their phone, there was sort of no downside in the sense that you launch your phone, worst case, people don't use it, but it's probably not going to kill anyone. With autonomy, you have this actually very clear downside that it could be very dangerous if it's not deployed very safely. And so I think there's, there's going to be a lot more care put in the industry to make sure that the deployments are safe making sure that we are launching safe systems, making sure that we're investing the necessary amount of resources to really be sure that any systems that we deploy are safe. So it's, it's at least the very beginning of the S curve is going to be a bit slower uh, than, than I think the mobile curve because there's, we'll need to be a bit more thoughtful about the rollouts. But then once again, once the technology 
works and it starts getting deployed and there's all these new use cases that pop up and there's there will be this mad dash to deploy in various geographies, this mad dash to deploy new business models in various areas between delivery, between ride sharing, between trucking, et cetera. It will start looking like the early mobile market where there's tons of opportunity, a lot of opportunity for all these business models to be capitalized on. And beyond that, it's very hard to tell what will happen. I think it's sort of anyone's guess. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think volatility is in a market is the way where you, you actually, there's opportunity that emerges, right? The other side of opportunity is volatility. And I think you'll, you'll continue to see volatility. I think the way that it is different from, and this is really probably a, a controversial statement that I'm going to make is, I think it's going to be bigger than mobile. Uh, I think if you just look at the dollars that are put towards mobility and transportation as a whole on a day-to-day basis, you know, uh, I spent some years at Google and one of the, you know, famous kind of Google Larry's sayings is, we should build products that are like toothbrushes that people use, you know, multiple times a day. The, the key point about toothbrushes, they're super cheap and toothpaste is a commodity. Autonomy, on the other hand, or mobility is both something that you use often and as this huge market. And so it's very attractive just in terms of if you're gonna if you're gonna attack a space, I uh, I was an investor before and uh, at Y Combinator, and one of the things that I think we really um, saw in companies that uh, in, in terms of your founder, you never want to build a company in a small market, and this is the opposite. This is clearly a large market, so it's like in this large pool. Now, where do you want to swim to? Which lane do you want to swim to that has the most amount of immediate opportunity uh, with the context of the accordion, you know, of like what, what are the timelines because the timelines are, are being debated. And that's, that is different than mobile, right? Whereas I think in 2007, where you can just talk as, as the iPhone is the beginning of the modern mobile age, I think it's just very, very difficult to imagine a $20 billion outcome from a messaging company. And I, to be honest, I, I was... Working on my last startup was a messaging startup in the in 2010, right? And so I remember people would ask us like, "Oh, are all messaging companies like? There's already texting. There's gonna be more messaging companies. That was before WhatsApp. That was before Snapchat. And so I, I think I think this can be bigger than than maybe some of the biggest industries Silicon Valley has ever seen or slash disrupted or touched. And I think like some of the things that Alex said, it's fundamentally different because you're dealing with you know you're dealing with atoms and not just bits. You're, you're dealing with products that are being moved around, cars that are being moved around, and so their safety becomes a, a, a real you know, bullet point that you have, to, you have to design for. Yeah, I think one big difference between mobile and autonomy is if you look at mobile, it would have been kind of unclear, other than the telco industry, like what would have been clearly disrupted by that technology. And it, it, like now we look, it, like personal computing is just totally blown out the window by mobile, but it's so hard to have, to have understood that. Mobile is basically sort of this new category that developed. Autonomy is a new technology that's being developed, but it's very impactful to a number of extremely large existing industries. So there will be a crazy amount of opportunity as that technology sort of gets deployed in all of these very long-standing industries like shipping, like the tax industry or the ride-sharing industry, like delivery, like last-mile logistics. All of these are incredibly large industries that will be fundamentally changed by the technology. And so that, that puts just, a, I think, a, a floor on how big uh, autonomy will be. If Snap was, you know, or Uber or sort of, you know, multi-billion dollar companies that were sort of secondary effects from the rise of mobile, w- w- what are equivalents going to be for, for the autonomy space? Oh, man, I think it's really, I think it's really tough, tough to say. I think anything that moves will probably be touched by autonomy to some degree. I mean, we're sitting in an office, uh, all the chairs here, everything, everything can ultimately have some concept of intelligence in it. And that's the real far reaches, right? I, I think, I think the reason people don't talk about like self-cleaning, uh, uh, you know, uh, conference rooms is because the bigger fruits are just so obvious, like self-driving trucking is, is just so obvious, the economic, you know, value that can be derived from there. And I think you will spend a long time just extracting efficiencies out of the market there before you start getting to the real, uh, real edge cases. Uh, I think it's really hard to tell. I think, I think it's really hard to tell. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of the big startups of the past decade, like DoorDash, Instacart, Uber, a lot of these are, are fundamentally sort of these like logistics companies that will be fundamentally changed by autonomy. So if you look at like the biggest companies from the past decade, all of those will be fundamentally changed by autonomy as well. That's just, again, a lower bound. Yep. Let's talk a little bit about the future of autonomy and the different worlds that can play out. You know, we talked about 
you know, the iPhone era, obviously, Apple was, a, was the big winner, but Google and some other players as well. And we talked about PC, Microsoft, but also some other players as well. In autonomy, there's there's a lot of sort of existing players, you know, the OEMs, you know, GM, uh, Chrysler, et cetera, and many others. Then there's obviously big companies like Google, Waymo, you know, Tesla, Apple. And then, you know, we talked a little bit about, you know, things like Zooks or uh, new startups. What are the different worlds that can play out in autonomy and what sort of things need to be true for certain types of players, you know, talking abstractly to, to win? Well, I think like, you know, I think one view we at the applied hold is the OEMs will definitely have a role to play. Uh, I think there is almost no version of passenger autonomy where the OEMs are not somehow involved in, in a real fundamental way. I think uh, the how the puzzle pieces shake out between you know, the, the mobility startups, the traditional software startups like Google and Apple, the vertical companies that have emerged just to, uh, just to do AV, the OEMs. I mean, that's probably going to be another couple of hour conversation. I think the rough mixes, all of these will make some soup, which will be new, which will be autonomy. And you'll be, you'll have winners and losers that'll be very large within that group. I think it's really hard to say, OEMs as a whole, because a company like Volvo Cars is so different than even Volvo Trucks, which is so different than General Motors and Honda and Ford and in Daimler and so on. So I think even within each of those subgroups, there's going to be huge deviations. I mean, uh, um, the vertical AV companies that are well-funded, there's going to be deviations. The way that Cruise versus Zooks versus Aurora versus, you know, Aneuro, their just approaches are just so, so different and their, their, their use cases are so different, even though, again, superficially, they all look similar. So I think it's really hard to say precisely who's, who's going to be the winner or losers. But there, there certainly will be winners, uh, winners and losers. I think more winners because it's a growing market. But yeah. Yeah, definitely. The, the, market, the market's growing a lot. OEMs will de- like definitely at the end of the day be very pivotal in the actual, <clears throat> at the very least, the deployment of this technology, possibly much sooner than that if some of their programs end up being very successful. And I, I do think one of these very important aspects about this problem is that it's also heavily geographic. So there's all these players who are attacking various geographies in the United States, uh, and those are the ones that we often spend most of the time talking about. At the same time, there's this whole ecosystem in China. Baidu has a very extensive program. Uh, there's a bunch of startups like Pony AI, uh, Roadstar AI, Jingchur AI. So th- there's, there's a very live ecosystem out there that those companies are also very well funded. It's going to be like a totally separate market that will almost operate as, I think, a parallel market to what happens in the United States. And then you also have the, the large German OEMs who could choose to invest in U.S. companies or, or these U.S. efforts. They also could choose to build out expansive and successful programs in Germany. So I think there's a lot of people who care about where this market will go, obviously. And I, I think in each market or each geography, and in each market, so whether it be trucking, delivery, ride-sharing, you'll see different winners. So there will be, ultimately, if you count it all up, a lot of winners, and some of them are going to be quite large. Yeah, it's kind of like saying what, who, who, would, who would win out of mobile in 2005 or 2007 or 2010. I think it's a lot of people have won. Not only the like infrastructure companies, existing players like Google and Apple have, have, have gotten you know as much out of mobile as anybody else. So, so there, there isn't just a simple you know, 140 character, these people will win and these people will lose. I think that's why, you know, being in the business is exciting and interesting. It's, it's, it's definitely evolving. It's like these tectonic plates, which are shifting and, uh, you, you know, what, what the outcome of that will be, uh, is, is still to be determined. Totally. Let's go deeper on, on some of those spaces. If, if okay with you guys, like for example, the, the ride sharing companies, what needs to be true for that category to be the big winner versus uh, sort of an ancillary player, this whole thing. Well, I think uh, I, I, it's, it's the, the, the question is, is set in a way which implies that it'll be either or. I think ride sharing can win and can trucking and can a bunch of other things. So that, that's probably the first thing I would say. But in terms of what the long tail is, I, you know, I'm, I'm in the school of thought that this is no longer a research problem. I think Waymo in many ways has proven that this is more of an engineering problem. It will be solved and with, with, a, with a bunch of folks who are, who are close followers it's going to be solved. So then what is the long tail then? I think it really is economics. It's unit economics. So a car that you drive yourself, that you own, that's some 50 some cents a mile in terms of cost. A ride share uh, is maybe in the dollars in terms of a per mile. 
what does it have to be in terms of an autonomous vehicle that's a robo-taxi? Well, guess what? Consumers actually don't care if it's an Uber driver or an Uber ATG car. They just care about the price. And so I think the key, the, the long, you know, long pole there is just economics in terms of who will be able to drown, drive down price. And uh, just as a selfish plug, the easiest way to drive down price is to outsource things which are not core to your development because it's just cheaper. And, and you know, that's the market efficiency. So I think Alex and I both see just from our customers that price is important, like in all economic systems. And so what you'll see is really the downward pricing pressure from the end consumer. Who, who has ultimate pricing power in this in this equation or the end buyer of the trucking logistics product, et cetera. And so when you see that downward pricing pressure, that means downward pricing pressure on everything in the stack, including sensors and including the vehicles and the cleaning and the maintenance and the entire infrastructure and ecosystem around it. So I think that's, to me, in my mind, that's the, the long tail. Yeah, it, very much so. I mean, today it's very much so a technology game, but once these deployments start coming out, it'll be very much an execution game. Um, and seeing who who's operationally excellent and who is able to, like as they're saying, like successfully drive down their own cost structures such that they can run these fleets very profitably. Are we going to own our own cars uh, in the future? And, and broadly, what's going to be the role of brand? Well, I, I think I think uh, the issue with that you know view that are we going to own? I think I mean people own horses today still, right? So it just depends on like. Uh, it's it's the annoying thing, uh, you know. Every question's answer is really it depends, <laughs> and so so it depends on what you what you what you really mean in terms of owning. You could have you could have a the way that we own current cars today. I, I do think so. I, I do think that will that that out of just the the luxury product that people will want to have their own vehicle that has their own creature comforts and their own things in it. Yeah, there will be a subsection of the market now. That where the debate really is, is that going to be Single digit percentages, is that going to be high double digit percentage? I think, I think that's unknown. Economics would, would drive towards the sharing model because that's just where you're, again, sharing the costs uh, and maintenance across lots of people. Uh, and of course, you get flexibility in, in return. Again, if it's cheaper to share than to own, then people will share. If it's cheaper to own than share, people will own. So the, the question really becomes like, what is going to be the natural end state? I think the, in terms of will brands matter? You know, this probably is my Detroit auto experience talking here. The the difference between, you know, a lot of Silicon Valley views of autonomy and, and kind of the Detroit or Stuttgart or the, or the I would say traditional automotive views is automotive companies will always drumbeat brand because I think it's true. I, I, I do think it, it's interesting in Silicon Valley, people are like very proud to own Teslas, but somehow can't conceive, could project like people would be proud to own like a Ford F-150 or a Subaru or, you know, a, a, a Honda, you know, a, a Honda Civic or something like that. There are people have affinities and they have certain, the, the vehicle that they own projects a certain brand. A BMW says something about me, which is different than a Volvo station wagon. And so, yeah, I think brands will continue to exist. I mean, it's really like, what products do we use on a day-to-day -day basis where you don't care about the brand at all? Even water, people care about the brand, right? And that's like a, a true commodity, right? So I think brands will continue to exist because they project something. But again, you know, uh, we're really talking into the, in, into the future that we, uh, at least I certainly have a hard time kind of putting my finger on. Yeah, I, I would agree. I mean, I think in general, any consumer like spend item, brands matter a lot. So it, it might actually be different in like the, for example, the trucking industry because it's much more B2B driven. So, so it might it might matter a lot less there, but in even in ride sharing, brand matters a huge amount, right? But I could even you could even make an argument on B two B trucking, like those legit you know, providers, they look at certain bodies that they that certain uh, the Volvo trucks uh, have a certain reputation, Peterbilt has a certain reputation, etc. Totally. Uh, Daimler trucks that are not there, a bunch of these companies own each other, so I don't exactly know who, who's who's independent who's not. But the uh, the point is, yeah, I think even in a B two B context. There is some sense of brand, probably like, you know, a good example of that. I remember in the early days, people were saying, well, well how is Stripe going to be successful? You know, they, there's already PayPal and Stripe put out a good product, fundamentally a easier to use payment platform, but then they created a brand around that. And, and so brand does matter. Brands do say they think, so I, I think brands will continue to have. Yeah, it will definitely matter. And it's a very safety sensitive purchase. So it'll feel it's an important purchase, like who you, which autonomous fleet you end up riding in. So they will certainly matter. I'm definitely of the perspective, though, that the overriding, overwhelming dominant force in the industry is just going to be pushing down cost curves. Yeah. 
And so brands will matter to the extent that like at the, on the margin brands will matter, but there will be this massive push for decreasing costs and operational excellence at the end of the day will dictate more who wins than, than their ability to build brand. Yeah, I, the, the, the one thing to add on to that is if you look at how the American population is basically what the demographic of the American population is, something like two thirds of Americans don't have more than one you know, paycheck worth in, in, their, in their bank account. That, those are the people making decisions, consumption decisions. That means they're price sensitive. I think sometimes, uh, especially when you work in high tech among a lot of highly educated people uh, working in really nice offices with lots of amenities, you forget that that is not the normal. Silicon Valley is not the norm in America. So that's, that's a really, it's like obvious, I guess. Uh, maybe, uh, maybe again, that's my Detroit speaking, but it, it is, it is uh, worth underlining that, that the, the reality that you're going to be price insensitive is not the truth for most people. Also, secondary in terms of demographics, something like 60% of Americans live in suburbs. You know, the, the rest split roughly between cities and, and, and rural areas. And how autonomy is, you know, seen in those three different geographies is very different. Just like how everything is seen differently, you know, a lot of the products are seen differently and entertainment is seen differently and uh, everything else we consume is seen differently between those, the, sub, the suburban demographic versus the rural versus the urban. And so, so I think that that's kind of an under talked about uh, thing uh, in, in, in autonomy. And, but I think all of that is related to cost curves, and everything has to be cheaper. Cheaper is important. The, the magic three things, if you're a founder, you're trying to build a company, you want your solution to be cheaper, safer, and more convenient. If you can get those three things, your product is probably going to do very, very well. But is it possible that like the iPhone, and I guess this is the argument maybe for Apple or Tesla in, in autonomy, that uh, people who, who can pay will for, for a better, more beautiful product? It, it's a bit different because it's just, it's such a repeat purchase. Like, if it's a robo taxi, for example, you're going to be making that decision every day. And so, unless you have a subscription, that's true. Unless you have yeah. a subscription, that's fair. But I, I do think since it's, I, I mean, I don't actually know if people think about, uh, I, I'm not well studied enough, but I, I doubt that people think of their phones as a recurring purchase, even though it truly is. They might feel better, like might feel more willing to splurge and, and sort of spend for that higher brand. It'll be hard to get away from the thought that your autonomous delivery or your autonomous taxi is not a recurring purchase. And so I think people will be more present. I don't know, though. Hard to say. Hard to say. <laughs> this, is, this, is, this is the problem with uh, trying to play the prediction game. You're basically mostly wrong. <laughs> so like, I'm sure we'll listen to this like three years ago and say, note to self. Don't feel so, don't sound so confident in podcasts. <laughs> uh, what, what do you think is the most valuable part of the car slash what will, what will get commoditized? Well, I think, uh, like we've been saying, invariably cost curves are going to have to come down. So it depends on like how you define commoditized versus, versus not commoditized. But, but in some sense, it's, it's all sort of, all the cost curves are going to have to come down over time. Your lighter is going to have to get, your sensors are going to have to get a lot cheaper. Everything that plays into the software stack is going to have to get a lot cheaper. Um, your R&D expenses just overall are going to have to get a lot cheaper. So really all of it in some sense is going to be commoditized. I, I do think that, that at the end of the day, what say the self-driving car manufacturers will feel more willing to spend more on are the safety critical aspects. Because that's ultimately, if you think about like, how an autonomous vehicle manufacturer's brand develops over time, the most important thing is to be safe. So I think that uh, that's actually a great story for both scale and applied intuition. I think the data that feeds your, your models is very safety critical. At the same time, simulation is very safety critical. And so anything that's, that's sort of on the critical path to safety, and there's actually a lot of pieces there, but anything that's on that critical path is going to be something that the that everybody's going to be willing to spend more on. And, and so those will be much less commoditized, than I think, a lot of the other aspects, um, but in general, cost curves are going to come down everywhere. I think I think the, the the you know the old adage of you know in the long run we're all dead. In the long run, everything's a commodity. So the question isn't necessarily what will be commoditized, but what are the time horizons? Just like in public equities, right? When do you buy and when you sell is probably the more important than what you buy, and and so. I think I think I think there there's some there's some piece there, and I think the companies that end up making it out of the other side, I think generally are more cost conscious. I think that's true in probably every business that there there are not many businesses where just lighting large piles of money on fire is like the most prudent thing to do. 
So I think the, the faster the founders and the leaders of each of these companies recognize, hey, it does matter how much we spend and how much the product to the end and the consumer ultimately is uh, matters to us. Uh, probably the more likely they are going to survive in some time. And but again, that is just the beginning of, of commoditization. That's that's all it is. Casa casually quoting John Maynard Keynes, showing your renaissance. renaissance. <laughs> I did I did minor. I was, I was an engineer, but I did minor in economics. So <laughs> I'm, I'm curious where where else you guys perhaps have different opinions on the future of autonomy than than perhaps than others or, or even mainstream. Uh, and and Casa, one that you have is that. There's going to be even more startups, you know, emerging in the space, whereas some other people, maybe Bill Gates included from our conversation, think that there may be uh, more consolidation as the market matures. Yeah, I, I think, I, I mean, I've, I've heard the point of consolidation. I, I certainly, I mean, I was asked, you know, this question a couple of years ago, a year ago, and it's, it's, a, it's a constant question, like, when is the end of this hype cycle for autonomy? I just don't think that's the case. It's kind of like sitting in 2010 and saying, well, there'll be more apps in on the you know app store and then 2012 and 2014 and 2016 there's there's been more and more and because the market is just getting bigger right there are more people using phones smartphones today than ever before and at literally like this month of this year and so i think the question really is well will there be more companies working on autonomy in 12 months from now than there are today without a doubt there is no evidence at all that says there is some market. Remember, everything is really not the market doesn't doesn't form based on how how convincingly one can argue the way the market should go. It's it's it moves through fundamental market mechanics, and there's no mechanic in the market right now that implies starting a company today is worse than starting it a year or two ago. Actually, the opposite is true. Today, if you start an autonomy company, there's all these things you, that are already now mature that you can buy right off the shelf. And that'll continue to happen to one, two, three, four years down the road. And therefore, there's actually a market incentive to start a company later, of course. And then there's a natural, uh, you know, uh, dynamic we talked about earlier, which is once one use case is very clearly fleshed out and, and the cynics are kind of done, you know, pushing back on will autonomy even exist and then will it be cheap and will, will it be safe, will it be cheap, et cetera, more brand new use cases will, will, will come up. That, that's probably the most likely area. I mean, just a year ago, I think self-driving trucking was not the thing it is today, that's just 12 months ago. Now you have a bunch of companies who are all very sophisticated, really running, you know, full, full bore, uh, rather than just maybe two or three at the problem. And I think you go 12 months in the future, you go 12 months in the future, you'll see more and more autonomy companies get from there. I have, you know, no, no, no doubt that I think that'll happen. Totally. I agree with this point, which is like, if you thought about the autonomy problem two years ago, for example, you would have thought the front runners are Apple, Uber, and Waymo, or sorry, what at that point was still Google X. And, and it would have been hard for you to imagine a world where it was like a significantly more crowded ecosystem where there were a lot more players who all had different interesting takes on the problem. You would have told yourself the same things that we're telling ourselves now, which is like, it's how is it, how is this going to get even more hyped? And the reality is the ecosystem developed. And you, because it's such a valuable problem and because there's so much surface area and there's, it's such an important problem, it's going to continue attracting more companies, more talented folks, and it's going to be a more alive ecosystem. Well, yeah, one analogy maybe to, to put in here is imagine if you took all the autonomy founders and put them in a room. And then, and then every time a new autonomy company got started, big or small, they'd have to enter that room. And everyone thinks, wow, it's getting really, really crowded in here. But I think where the, the false structural view there is that that room is in a finite size. Actually, that room keeps expanding, the market keeps expanding. There isn't a crowding, but the way that a human brain works, we don't really emotively understand market expansion in the way that we understand more companies joining an ecosystem. Like I, I really feel like, you know, every time there's a big autonomy funding announcement, a bunch of people like groan and roll their eyes and like, oh, this is overhyped, but they don't realize that oh, the market is actually getting much, much bigger, much, much faster because of these market efficiencies that are being driven by each of these, whether horizontal or vertical companies or sensor suppliers or whoever it is. So I, I, I think, I think that, that analogy is one, one good way to kind of think about the blind spots that the brain has in terms of will there be more companies or, or not in the future. Maybe a take that some people will disagree with, by the way, is I actually think that the non-robo-taxi applications are a lot more interesting, particularly if you look in the timescale of the next five years, for example. Like if you look at trucking as an application or you look at delivery as an application, I think those are 
much more real and much more able to be deployed very quickly, partially because of this, this safety issue that I was talking about before. Also, I think the, the unit, unit economics for those use cases is actually a lot more clear than the unit economics for the robotaxi use case. So, so I think those other modalities, other deployments of the technology are going to be what the average consumer or the average American sees first, far before the, the robotaxis reach them. And so I think, I think those are actually very interesting areas to either be investing in or to be starting companies or to be thinking about. Whereas right now, I think a lot of the media and a lot of what, what sort of captivates people's attention is definitely the robotaxis because certainly it would be the most, I think, transformative from a personal consumer, like what would be the most transformative to your daily experience. But I think you'll see it in the, in the delivery, last mile logistics, and, and trucking areas much sooner. It, it's, just, it's also just like emotionally cooler, right? Like if you think of like some version of the future and, you know, the autonomous thing is like the mail being brought up to your, you know, door. You're not like, wow, I'm in the future. But the self-driving car that shows up, that's like, wow, there's just an emotional impact there. And that's why I think the media, and it's something very easy to relate and understand. So I think the media really jumps on it. Yeah, but, but it's, it's all good because I think the, the technology is progressing altogether. And so those other deployments, which will be very, very large businesses, are, are still going to be there and still going to, get, going to get developed. Yeah, that's the other thing. Like whenever there's a huge, massively growing market, it's not really a zero-sum game in any way. There's so much opportunity, I think, for, for all the new entrants that it'll be very interesting to, to be in the space. I want to piggyback on something you mentioned, Alex, about investment opportunities or opportunities to build companies in the space. Let's pretend that we were starting a fund solely focused on, on funding autonomy or future of autonomy you know, opportunities, and we were both putting out our investment thesis or another way of putting that out would be like a you know, request for startups. Cassie was CEO of, of YC, so you're very familiar with that. What would our thesis slash request for startups be in the autonomous space for entrepreneurs out there? Uh, well, I think it'd just be infrastructure for AV uh, or infra- infrastructure for autonomy broadly. I think that's a, like I was saying before, if you think about the opportunities in the space, I think that's one that systematically like founders will be less likely to start. So it's sort of the arbitrage opportunity. And really, if you project the industry forward, it's going to be built on top of a large number of these infrastructure companies. And there's going to be massive opportunity for all of them. So that would be that would be my thesis. What about you, Kazer? I think there's probably a lot of um, interesting, almost micro applications of autonomy that are that are still to be determined uh, or to be defined. Warehouse and logistics in general is within factories. I, I worked in manufacturing for a bunch of years. Within factories and uh, places like airports, there are already some low levels amount of automation that happen in terms of moving product around. That going to the next level, I think, is just super interesting. What's so nice about that constrained environment is it's a constrained environment. It's not different weather. It's not different. It's, it's generally speaking, especially in, in warehouses and factories indoors, and you're probably not going to kill anybody uh, if uh, because because the the, the, the machines themselves are uh, can be smaller. So I think there's some interesting applications there. I think I don't just know enough about the space to to know is that like already a very competitive environment because there are companies that do some version of. Of, of logistics within, uh, or, or lots of different types of logistics there. But yeah, there's, there's a lot of opportunities. I, I think there's, there's a lot, there's, there's a lot of opportunities, whether they're vertical or horizontal. I think there's a lot of opportunities still. Yeah. I, I think another way to frame it is actually, I think autonomy is, is just the start of a broader robot revolution in general. Like I think the, if you really look at what are the components of autonomy that are, that are enabling it right now, it's that we've gotten really good at perception. We've gotten really good at, mapping, we've gotten really good at localization, which are actually just generic, uh, really good at the control stack, really good at planning. Those are actually just generic robotics problems. And so I think if you imagine a world where tons of things that are currently done by humans are done by robots in the future that, that are teleopt whenever the algorithms on board aren't able to uh, figure out the right thing to do and otherwise mostly governed by algorithms, I think that's a that's clearly a very huge opportunity, and I, I think the the sort of autonomy in the context of self driving is really the beginning of that evolution. You two are my uh, my first and only investments in the autonomy space, so I'm, I'm looking forward to more particularly in infrastructure. Um, as we look out into the the future of autonomy, what sort of big questions to be figured out, or the big unknowns that will determine you know what types of player, what archetypes win, or, or where the market moves? 
I mean, I think we talked about it, which is price. That's going to be the big open question. How do you get this to be really, really cheap, really, really dependable, and therefore very widely adopted? I think once that's solved, uh, we'll probably be talking about a new technology platform, which is emerging, <laughs> and then and then how, how, how the market is shaping up to that. Or what archetype has, has the most leverage here? How you mean in terms of who? In this market. Who in the ecosystem? Yeah. It, it, it really depends. I mean, uh, using like an analogy of, of whether it's mobile or desktop, like who has the most leverage? It's, it's, it's a, that's a very, you know, and those are mature, mature platforms. Uh, it's, it's a very multi-sided question. If you have, you know, if you own the operating system, you have leverage in, you know, in the, in the, maybe the, the app stores. But if you are an app, you have leverage because you're, you're independent of individual distribution. You, you don't have to depend on Android or on Apple or, or anything else. So I think leverage is not a zero-sum game. It, it really depends on your relationship to the market, what strengths you have, and how can you use them to extract value. Totally. Talent right now is very constrained or is constrained. I think you'll see that opening up more and more just as you see more and more engineers being interested in the space. And so we're probably at peak talent crunch right now. Uh, just kind of like we were in peak talent crunch on mobile, uh, you know, in maybe 2010 or 2011, maybe 2012, where the, clearly the market is there and now everyone's trying to rush through that door and therefore bumping into each other. And at some point, you know, there'll, there'll just be more and more engineers. Like now, it's almost like if you remember when the social network came out, there was like a wave of computer scientists which hit like two, three years later because they saw that stuff when they were in high school. Those individual students saw that in high school and said, oh, that's like a really fascinating industry for me to be in. And so we're going through that kind of wave right now where a lot of people are getting interested in autonomy, but they're, some are graduating already. But uh, they'll, you'll see just kind of waves of, of new engineers that are already familiar with Ross and like all the basics of what an AV is or the basic ro- basics of robotics. And, uh, and then you'll have a bunch more people and suddenly, suddenly I think the talent crunch will, 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 won't, won't be as intense as, as it is now. There's always a talent crunch. I mean, in Silicon Valley in general, there's always a talent crunch, but I think you'll see uh, some relaxation there. Totally. Yeah. I, I, I would totally agree with that. If you, if you pull the smartest kids coming out of the top schools right now, there are, probably like almost all going into machine learning or autonomy for, for technology companies. And that's, that's really a sign of the times, just like Hazard saying like that, that supply will flood into the market. Um, the talent crunch will become much less pronounced. And I actually do think one of the, one of the, the key indicators uh, of which companies end up being successful is who's going to be the best at utilizing this sort of like relatively fresh talent that comes into the market and who's going to be best at training them up to be effective. So, I mean, you see this in the past, like companies like Dropbox or Facebook or Stripe, they've done really, really what strong jobs of being able to grow their talent forces very, very quickly using a lot of sort of like um, new grad or, or sort of like relatively junior talent in the market. And, and that allowed them to execute on a large number of initiatives allowed them to scale out their R&D efforts quite a bit. And so I think similar to the autonomy space, you'll sort of see which companies are able to take advantage of that talent arbitrage and then come out on top as a result. And, you know, Keith, your boy, has this uh, adage that you learned from Peter Thiel of if you're a new startup, you have to identify, you know, new talent or undiscovered talent, as you just mentioned. Alex, you know, Cassie, you're Applied intuition is a new startup, but you've you've you know been in the valley for a long time and are have been able to recruit sort of a world class team that other big competitors are, are also trying to recruit. Alex, have you which approach have you tried to to talent? Uh, have you tried to find people who are more undiscovered, or or what's been your general approach? I uh, I dropped out of MIT before starting scale, so I had, had a clear first advantage, which is you can hire smart kids out of MIT, which uh, which always pays off more or less. And so that, that was one, one arbitrage mechanism. And then going forward with talent, I mean, I really think that it's sort of like incredible talent at the very beginning, begets more talent, begets more talent, begets more talent. At the end of the day, the best people in the Valley or the best people in software really just want to work with an incredible group of people and then also obviously be winning. So if you have a strong business and your early team is very strong, then I think you're generally in a really great position to continue attracting talent. Agreed. So to, to close, uh, Cass or Alex, can you guys both uh, plug scale and applied intuition or any plugs in terms of what people can expect? 
and for people who are potentially interested in joining? For Applied specifically, we build really, really, really complicated uh, software. And if those technical challenges are interesting to you, you know, we're, we're an interesting company that overlaps both kind of the lab model of we're, we're, a, we're a small company, relatively speaking, uh, in the uh, AV business with very, very senior engineers. That's the majority of our companies actually uh, uh, X-Alphabet, so Waymo, X-Infrastructure, uh, Maps, Android. And so that's a, that's, that's a, you get the best of both worlds. You get to work with really, really smart people. And uh, you get to work on technically very, very challenging problems in an environment which is doesn't have all the hangups that a, that a large company does. So that's that's kind of the for some people uh, that really resonates. That that environment really resonates, especially I would say senior engineers, PhDs. We have, we have a gaggle of PhDs. So uh, yeah, yeah. And I I think scale ultimately our opportunity and our mission is to actually fully build out sort of the infrastructure platform for AI and deep learning. And I think if you ask anyone right now, there's so much opportunity in AI and deep learning. And we're actually in, I think, a rarefied spot because we're actually a very already a very dependent on piece of infrastructure by many of the sort of top machine learning teams in Silicon Valley already. And so I think we're in an incredible spot to actually build out whatever the AWS for AI looks like. I think Andre Karpathy said at one point, I was talking with him about which companies are sort of in the best position to build out the ID for, for deep learning and scale is actually in his eyes, one of those because we're, because of like our path to date. So I think the real opportunity to, to be joining scale is, is, Hey, you can come work with an incredibly smart bunch of people. Don't take my word for it. Uh, we're a bunch of folks who have either worked in the Valley at companies like Dropbox, Stripe. Uh, we have some early cruise employees here as well. Also a bunch of smart kids, smart people from MIT and Stanford. Um, you can sort of, we have bios on our website, take a look, but um, work with an incredibly smart group of people on an incredibly large and open sort of product space and one that could have potentially a crazy amount of impact. Like if you look at the amount of impact that AWS had or the amount of impact that Stripe has had uh, on their respective areas where they've built infrastructure, it's quite massive. Yeah, totally. Having met a few people from, from each of their teams, I can attest to how good the teams are and how good uh, both Alex and Catherine are. Guys, thank you very much for coming to this podcast. This has been a this has been a great episode. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much. Take care. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Please hit us up at villageglobal.vc/networkcatalyst.